my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we got a fun one. It's a little bit of a roller coaster, if you will. We're talking about Tsai Min Liang, the director of Stray Dog Dogs. Yeah, it's like a roller coaster where the challenge is like, can you stay on the ride when it's not moving? <laughs> yeah. And you're looking around going, am I supposed to get off? Is this part of the ride? <laughs> you were a fan of Tsai Ming Lang, right? Yes, I was a fan. And after this week, believe it or not, I am even more of a fan of Tsai Ming Lang. Although I will say that his movies are not meant to be watched back to back to back. He's an intimidating filmmaker. When you talk about slow cinema, he's standing with his arms crossed and a big smile on his face going, <laughs> I'm the final boss. Come at me. Truly. The thing about his movies is it's not about how boring they are. Will, you said things as, you know, there's different flavors of boring. My issue with his film and sitting down and watching them is I found it's very difficult to stay awake at times. <laughs> oh, I had that exact same experience this week. These movies definitely benefit from being seen in a theatrical context. You know, when you're in a theater and you can't leave. I would still fall asleep. But like the screen is gigantic and the sound is all around you and you can kind of become immersed in it. But certain things are lost at home. You know, there are distractions. You are more likely to split it over a couple of nights, which happened to me a few times simply because I would fall asleep watching some of these movies. So like that sense of momentum can be lost when you're watching that at home. But there's still plenty to enjoy and appreciate when you watch them at home. That's the thing that people need to understand when you're approaching uh, this filmmaker is that his films are slow they're very beautiful. They're also opaque. And the viewer is demanded to project their own interpretation at times. And even with all of that in mind, and you go in and you're like, all right, I'm going to stay up. I'm going to pay attention. This is going to give me my all. I just feel my head getting heavier, my lids closing, even though I'm maybe sitting in a cinema and watching this on 35 millimeter and this will never happen again. I'm like, gotta stay awake. And I can't. You know, I think it's understandable. I think Simon Lang himself would perhaps appreciate and even be amused by your reaction. I saw a film of his last summer called Your Face. It's one of his more recent films. And it's 12 long static shots of people's faces. It's so it's like the Andy Warhol screen tests, you know, and it just focuses on those faces. And I mean, I can't remember every single thing that happens in it, but I do think some of those faces fell asleep while you were watching. it. <laughs> uh, what a troll. I mean, Sai has a sense of humor about these things. His movies are sometimes described as miserableism, but they are always funny to some degree or another. I think that's important is that when you approach something like this, which is classified as high art, there's an expectation of a seriousness and a kind of solemnness to the experience. But it's like when we talked about a pitch pong, like there's jokes. The director is a human being and he is having fun with stuff even in Simon Lang's most miserable films like Stray Dogs there is still an element of absurdity to a lot of the stuff that he's putting on screen and he's aware of that because you know a film can't be one monotone experience and that he is playing with those different pitches yeah I'm thinking particularly of that scene in Stray Dogs where Lee Kang Shang is 
he's got a cabbage which has a human face on it and at first he starts angrily mutilating the cabbage and then he starts uh taking bites out of it and then he then he gets angry at it and then he cries into it and he cries and cries and cries into this cabbage for I swear the scene lasts over 10 minutes, just him and this cabbage. And I mean, at some point, that's pretty funny. When you start watching it, you're like, oh, what's going on? Is this how he's perceiving his kid? Has his kid put this cabbage there with a face in the bed because he's run off? Oh, he's smothering the cabbage. That means he probably wants to smother his own son. Does he realize that the cabbage is just a cabbage or is he too drunk to realize? You go through all of these emotions and interpretations of what's going on. And then as it goes on and on, the absurdity of it just elevates. I'll tell you my experience with stray dogs, which is not a very interesting story, although it's interesting to me because I always remember it as being like one of those key film going moments of my life. It was when it was at the Toronto Film Festival in 2013. I'd seen a few of Simon Lang's movies before this. I'd seen The Wayward Cloud, for instance, and a couple of other ones. And I was definitely not prepared for how slow Stray Dogs was going to be. And, you know, sitting there in the audience watching it, the penultimate shot of the film is 14 minutes of two people standing and looking at something off screen. And I feel like already I've maybe ruined the experience for the audience, because when I saw this movie, I had no idea this shot was going to last 14 minutes. I mean, it's a, it's a shot that comes at the end of a movie full of long, 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 long shots. And this one, it's Simon Lang's first movie in digital. So he's no longer bound by how much film you can fit on a reel. So he's going to make you sit in this shot for like, th again, this is where his sense of humor comes in. Like he's pushing you to the very limit of human endurance. And when you're watching this, not knowing how long it's going to be, being stranded without a map, like I actually kind of felt myself going a bit crazy <laughs> watching this shot. And it made me realize, yes, this is boring, but it's not boring in a typical way. It's boring in a suspenseful way. It's boring in a funny way. And after a while, it also makes you recalibrate your own relationship to the image on screen. Because in that shot, the woman in the foreground, you know, a tear trickles down her cheek at one point. Oh, yeah, but it trickles down like four minutes into that shot. And so, yeah, it's a huge moment when it happens. Uh, Lee Kang Shang, right behind her, he takes a couple of swigs of his, uh, you know, little bottle of alcohol. Towards the end of the shot, he leans in and hugs her. And I mean, when he leans in and hugs her, it's like it, 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 you gasp. It's like that's such an enormous movement. But I think that like the suspense of that shot is that as a viewer, you're also waiting for it to end. Because you're like, oh my god, I am here for so long. When is it going to cut away? And that movement is not only shocking because you haven't seen any, but it's almost an indication, oh, this will be a sign that we're going to move to something else. Like when that tear rolls down her cheek, it's almost a troll to the audience being like, this would be the climactic moment of any other regular shot. She's cried. You know, if this was a conventional dramatic movie, the music would swell. But nope. He just holds on it as like you were saying, as an audience member, you're like, oh, OK, am I am I missing something? Is something supposed to happen here? And because its length is so long near the end of the shot, I was like, Ugh, oh, my God, I trying to keep my eyes open. <laughs> but you just go through an experience in a way that if you watched a 14 minute short film, you would not have. But because this is at the end of a two hour plus one. There's almost like a battled heart and grit 
as an audience member. And this shot coming at the end of this particular movie is a particular provocation because this is the slowest feature film he's ever made. And there are a lot of emotions going on in this movie, even though it seems so simple. You know, we said that there's humor, there's obviously sadness and melancholy, and I think there's, I even think there's an element of anger in the movie. It's a movie about what I guess you would call the working poor. There's Lee Kang Sheng, who is Sai's uh, longtime lead actor, his Jason Muse, if you will. <laughs> uh, he's somebody who uh, uh, Sai Ming Lang found, I think, in a video arcade in the early 90s cast in one of his early films and has been in all of his films since then. A man who, you know, is a very deadpan, monotone screen presence, but projects a lot of presence. Anyway, he plays this like walking billboard in Taipei and he has two kids and they are homeless. You know, they they do their grooming in the bathrooms of public places they live in little hovels that they create for themselves in abandoned land. And the abandoned land is like right next to like the big bustling city. So like these spaces of poverty and affluence are right next to each other. And also like they're con- they're constantly intermingling. Like they're doing their bathing in the bathroom of the, the big department store, right? And at the same time, like all of his movies, especially as he gets later into his career... Uh, Timing Lang is giving you this skeleton of a story and asking you as an audience to infer every other emotional background that would motivate the decisions that these characters make. Like there's a woman that's following them. Later on, it seems like it's their mother or a mother figure. We're not quite sure why the father lost his job or what's going on with the kids. At one point, it seems like they're being saved by the father. And all of this is happening so slowly that it's giving the audience time to like kind of ponder what the next shot will be where is he going to take you where is the story kind of like swerving toward you know that there's not going to be any big emotional catharsis if you know his movies like there's not going to be a big reveal at the end so you're watching it for like different flavors and what is interesting the director and what does he want to kind of imbue emotionally in the audience and i think stray dogs is almost like uh, i haven't seen all of simon lang's films but out of all the ones that i've seen it seems like he's reached his ultimate form in the storytelling he wants to do. Well, I remember when it came out, he said that it was going to be his last narrative film. He has since made one that has premiered at this year's Berlin Film Festival. But in between Stray Dogs and that, he basically made experimental films, you know, movies for the gallery wall, like that one Journey to the West, where it's just an hour long and it's that monk who walks very slowly in the middle of Paris. Like, a lot of people that I've read who are not fans of Simon Lang do say stuff like, yeah, these movies are for galleries, like installations, which are never technically meant to be watched, like, throughout from one end to the other. What do you think about that? I mean, I understand it. I think, you know, your mileage will vary as a viewer. I'll say that I had some trepidation about revisiting Stray Dogs because I worried that I would find it more boring this time, like boring in a bad Mm. way because I had already seen it. And so there would be no surprises. But I don't know, if anything, I think it became a a more intense, like an even richer experience. 
I mean, visually, there's a lot going on in it. It's his first digital movie, and I don't think I've seen another digital movie that is quite this, like, this intense a visual experience. Every shot has so much information. You know, the focus is very deep. There's so much color. Like, the scenes where they're in the more affluent spaces, like the department store, the grocery store, the city streets, there's just so much stuff like competing for your eye's attention and Psy doesn't direct your eye. So it feels like... Tati-esque. Yeah, it is sort of Tati-esque actually. And I think, you know, some of Psy's experiments with like combining humor with duration remind me of Tati a little bit. So Simon Lang started making films that were fairly conventional. All of his trademarks were there. But if you look at something like Rebels of the Neon God, his first theatrical film, it's definitely a distant cousin of the early cinema of Wong Kar Wai. This kind of like lived in uh, city story about youths kind of aimlessly going about their day. And as you get Further into his filmography, things get more and more obtuse until you get to something like Goodbye Dragon Inn, which I would say is probably his most famous film, that when I think of him as a director, that's the one that comes to mind. And it's probably uh, my favorite of his that I've seen. Yeah, this is a film that's about the goings-on of a dilapidated movie theater in Taipei. It's a, a big cavernous space. It, it looks very run down. It reminds me of certain movie theaters that I used to know, like the, the Toronto Underground Cinema or like the Albion Cinema in Etobicoke. The, this, this is, these references will be meaningless to any non-Toronto listener, but I do think the movie like consciously prods at memories like that. I think it encourages you to project your own like discarded cinemas onto it. And as opposed to something even like Stray Dogs, uh, Goodbye Dragon Inn is the viewer living in a space. There is some uh, character narratives, but essentially Tsai is just cutting from like static shots within the movie theater, like down the hallway, then you're in the cinema, and throughout all of it, King Who's Dragon Inn is playing on the screen, and often you're just watching a character, like, leave the ticket booths after reading a book for a couple of minutes, and then wander with a limp all the way up to the projection booth. There's also some, you know, very minor, very low-key drama that happens through the movie. There's a young man who's there who's, like, basically cruising, Like, it's inferred that this theater has become something of a cruising space. There are some some older uh, actors, I think they are. Yes, uh, they're supposed to be the ghosts of the actors that are being played on screen, because they're the actual actors that acted in uh, King Who's Dragon It. Right, and I think one of the problems of talking about Simon Lang is if you say, like, what the movie is about, it, it cheapens it. Sort of like if you say that Stray Dogs is a movie that's about the indignity of poverty, it sounds pretty simplistic. Or if you say The Hole is a movie about how lonely we are and how, how we just need to connect. Or if you say that Goodbye Dragon Inn is showing you this communal space that becomes so isolating, like the meaning of the space becomes sort of perverted. It sounds a bit lame. And the effect of the movie comes in the interplay of these emotions that are unspoken and that are, you know, they're spoken through the images and through the sounds and through the mood. I know it sounds like Will's going, you know, jazz is about the notes that you don't play. <laughs> but, you know, his movies are ink blots to the audience, right? Is that 
when you're watching them, you have to infer your own emotions and your own beliefs on what's happening. Even if they're giving you a thread of narrative, he's never giving it to you in a concrete way that two people could turn to each other and go, oh yeah, I completely understood what was going on. Those two people will probably have completely different interpretations because he's often like skipping moments or picking something here and then over there without giving you like a full vision of what's happening. And that's especially notable in something like The Wayward Cloud, which is probably his most accessible uh, film once he moved out of like the more, you know, one car wide commercialization of his early films, just because it's dealing with the absurdity of porn actors and its humor is right out in the open. The, the humor is quite intense and provocative in that movie. Doesn't it end with Lee Kang Shang like standing up and putting his dick in a woman's mouth? Like, yes, it does. That's almost uh, this uh, timing Lang seems to be like, I just want to end with like one final shock. It's like a symbol at the end of the film. And it's the first one of his movies I saw, you know, because it is more accessible and because it has a lot of sex in it. Yeah, you needed that skin on screen. And boy, do you get a lot of it. It's been forever since I've seen it. But the emotions that the movie evokes are different than the emotions that something like Stray Dogs evokes. I mean, I guess A Wayward Cloud is sad but it's it's spikier it feels like kind of nastier than some of the other ones do you know it what i does. mean it does it's kind of narrative bent the story of a woman and a man who i only learned after watching the movie were actually characters in a previous film that he made oh wow you know at one point she's like do you still fix clocks and i was like ah oh, what character detail that the audience has to infer for themselves? Oh, no, that's what he did in the previous film. I can't believe we made it this far without mentioning that The Wayward Cloud, like some of Sai's other movies, has elaborate musical oh, numbers love amidst all of the glacially paced scenes. That's the perfect, like, bonbon for the audience being like, listen, sit through this. I'm going to give you like a goofy old school musical number where the singers, it's the original recordings and it sounds like they're coming out of an old 45. And again, this is another one of those things that I think sounds not quite so clever when you say it out loud. Like in The Hole, for instance, which takes place during some sort of a plague and it takes place in this big apartment block where there are two characters, Lee Kang Sheng and the actress whose name escapes me right now. They live on... Uh, in the apartment above and below each other. And, you know, there's a hole that they build between their, apart their apartments, seemingly by accident, I think. But clearly this hole is some metaphor for how they, they need human connection because they're so isolated and lonely. And, you know, you follow these characters around this apartment building. You spend a lot of time with them alone in their homes. And then every now and then these musical numbers happen. And it doesn't sound very clever when you say, well, it's like an ironic juxtaposition or like, it's a dream world where they get to live the fantasy lives that they actually w wish they could live or it's like their internal lives in some way, but it works emotionally in some inexplicable way when you see it. Well, like in the wayward cloud, the musical numbers serve the purpose of characters emotionally expressing something, even in the obtuse musical way that they're experiencing within the narrative. And also to give some outright laughs, like at one point, a character who has difficulty having an erection is then transposed to a musical number where he is chased by a number of women as he 
uh, dons a giant penis costume in a cavernous public bathroom. And yet, I, I'm not sure I would say that The Way We're Cloud is the one I would recommend to newcomers necessarily. W- would you? Uh, I would recommend Goodbye Dragon Inn because that one is actually fairly short. It clocks in under 90 minutes. I'm sure that there are some people listening who would wonder you know, why would people want to watch Simon Lang's movies? I'm sure there are some listening who think it sounds a bit like The Emperor's New Clothes. I mean, I realize that he is a worshipped figure. Some of our listeners will already be on the cult of Psy and will not need any explanation. I think there's a lot of pleasure to be gained from these movies. And I'll use the example of Your Face again, the more recent one that's just the 12 shots of people's faces. You know, when those faces fill the screen and you have to watch them forever, seemingly, the faces become like landscapes. And again, Psy isn't directing your eye. So you're looking around these faces and you see, well, there are moles, there are dimples, there are wrinkles, there are little hairs. You go exploring on these people's faces. And then sometimes the face will move. In fact, the faces are always moving. There are some faces that are more active than others. There are some faces that talk. There are some that fall asleep. But like the eyes will start moving and that's a big event. And then the eyes start moving and you think, well, the eyes are like independent of the face. And like, what is your relationship to your own face? To what extent does your face define you? Can you exist independently of your face? So as you can see, your mind can go in a million different directions when you're watching one of these movies. Is this reality, man? Am I controlling these hands or is somebody just controlling me who's in charge of these hands? You know, if I was trying to recommend any of his films to people and they came with trepidation, I would say a number of things. Number one. Everybody loves a challenge. As a moviegoer, you want to throw yourself in the deep end every now and then. Number two, his films are beautiful and there is directorial intent behind them. And I think that's always important when you come to films that are always classified as like, ah, yes, this is the totemic work of art, is that you often feel as a new consumer, like, why do I need to experience it? What will I bring to it that people before me haven't? And just know that it is something that is valuable to be experienced. And number three, like we've said throughout this, they're funny. Like, there's jokes in them. And if you watch something like The Hole, which, again, is kind of dour, it's raining all the time, and the story is very elliptical, you'll have, like, musical numbers. And they'll be very clear kind of comedic moments. And if a new viewer is told from the get-go, like, some of these parts are funny, I think that's, like, a weight off people's shoulders. Just that, like, oh, it's not something that I'm not getting. I'm allowed to interact with it in this way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just a random thought. This week I was watching some of the really early Charlie Chaplin shorts, the shorts Chaplin made in 1915. And it actually reminded me a bit of the Simon Lang movies because in those early Chaplin shorts, the camera is often parked down. Film grammar was still sort of in its infancies and movies often still looked like stage plays. And so the camera isn't directing your eye in the way that it later would. And so Chaplin, as a director, circa 1915, would have these tableaus where there are a lot of people in the frame, and then the tramp comes towards the front of the frame, then another character comes in and interacts with the tramp, and a little scene plays out and the tramp leaves. And it's actually, in those early films, a bit of a challenge to watch, because you're not used to using your eye that way in a movie. Simon Lang has said that he wants to bring the experience of cinema back 
to what it could be, closer to what the Lumière brothers intended it to be, which is just capturing life and forcing you to experience this life, which is not the way that movies are ever used because grammar has evolved to this point that we're used to. And if we don't see that, we kind of rebel against it. Well, there's something provocative about that. I mean, I mean, Simon Lang knows that he is doing a provocation, but there's also something potentially exciting and empowering about that. The fact that control is handed back to the audience or the audience is told to almost like rediscover the medium, rebuild the medium again from the ground up. And not just the medium, but like Sai, I said, he's an angry filmmaker. He's angry, I guess, at a society that, that is not accommodating of this pace, either in film or in life. Like he wants you to rediscover this pace, allow yourself to live in this pace. And, you know, Cy hides Waldo in every one of his films. Can you spot him? <laughs> you know, something for the kids. So uh, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Marco. And he goes, Dear Important Cinema Club. Only the very few can embody the critic, as David Hume conceived of him or her. Men and women driven by passion as much as intellect, who devote their public lives to the appreciation of works of art. Men and women who think, feel, and speak, not to declare themselves the legislators of the aesthetic realm, but to become teachers of the heart, the mind, and the eye. Not to patronize the audience, but to help them cultivate themselves. Few Canadian movie podcasts come as close to this ideal as the important cinema club. I look forward to every episode. (laughs) You know, it's nice to start with like a, you know, a lengthy compliment sometimes. (laughs) And I will take this and put it on grant applications that we must make in the future. It's very flattering. I have a question for you. On several occasions, you have expressed your dislike for Hanna-Barbera cartoons. While they're obviously not as great as the Looney Tunes, I have some fondness for Tom and Jerry. So I wanted to ask you why you seem to particularly dislike them and their influences. That's funny he should ask that because I never really considered myself a Hanna-Barbera hater. I think Hanna-Barbera comes up whenever we talk about animation and we just use it as an example of like... Cheap animation. Yeah, because it is cheap. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, it is. Like you see, you know, Fred Flintstone with his mouth moving and nothing else moving and like the same three houses in the background going by again and again and again while he's driving. I mean, that that's pretty cheap. I mean, I watched the Flintstones and the Jetsons religiously as a child. It was like my go home on a half day in kindergarten and you eat lunch and you watch one of those shows. In my case, it was dubbed in French. The Flintstones were called Les Pierre à Feu. And it's only when you get older and you watch Looney Tunes stuff that you're like, oh, okay, Hanna-Barbera is pretty bottom of the barrel when it comes to jokes and, you know, execution. Because, you know, Looney Tunes were meant for theatrical distribution, while Hanna-Barbera were meant to be done as quickly as possible (laughs) to just, you know, get product out in the world. And I think as adults looking back on that, if you don't have any nostalgia for it, it's like... Oh, okay. The people making this don't like the cartoons they're making. They're just doing it because it's a job. (laughs) I mean, a strange thing is that the Flintstones was actually a prime time TV show. Like it was, it was meant for adults. Can can you believe that? I don't know. It's very difficult to imagine. I mean, Hanna-Barbera has a lot of, you know, characters that I do not revisit their classic appearances like Scooby-Doo, which again, I consumed 
voluminous quantities of as a child, but its repetitive nature leaves no lasting impression in my mind. I will not have a Proustian, like, reverie when I see Scooby-Doo. I'm going to be like, oh yeah, Scooby-Doo, he used to run between the doors, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Anyway, no disrespect to Hanna-Barbera. If you enjoy the work of Hanna and Barbera, uh, that's, that's delightful. I liked them when I was a kid. I follow Daily Snagglepuss and I smile with joy every time I see a new photo of him appear on my Twitter timeline. And Hanna-Barbera as like creatives, they did come out of that theatrical tradition of cartoons. They did do Tom and Jerry, which is like the template of cartoons in its like most elemental form. But again, like... I have no fond memories of Tom and Jerry cartoons. I remember asking for Christmas that Tom and Jerry DVD that came out. You remember when Hanna-Barbera were like pumping those out and watching them and going, yeah, this is fine, but it's it's, it's not the Looney Tunes. Yeah. Even when Chuck Jones ended up there, like his Tom and Jerry cartoons aren't that hot. Yeah, they're just the same joke over and over again. Tom and Jerry was the other animation unit at MGM at the same time that Tex Avery was operating. I like Tom and Jerry because they made a DTV movie in the 2000s and a screwy squirrel shows up very briefly. I don't know if this is the same movie, but there was Tom and Jerry the movie, which played theatrically in the early 90s, which uh, they talk in it and also their best friends in it. So the the whole meaning of it is gone. Like if they're not a cat chasing a mouse, what, what the hell are they? <laughs> yeah. You know, we don't like those classic cartoons, but we don't want them to change. Well, I don't want them to be, like, worse than they were. I remember there was a National Lampoon's magazine that I found in the cellar that my dad had. Number one, filled with naked ladies. Number two, there was, like, a parody of Tom and Jerry where... It was just like the cat and mouse mutilating each other in like itchy and scratchy style ways, but like in that graphic underground comic style. And every time I think of Tom and Jerry, I think of being like an eight year old and stumbling upon this comic strip and being like, oh, no, I shouldn't be watching this. So thank you very much for that letter, Marco. And if anybody listening has a question or comment, you can email us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, we're talking about a goofy movie. Speaking of great animation. I think we slag off Hanna-Barbera in that conversation too, very briefly. (laughs) Listen, one day we're, you know, once we're getting into like episode 500, we're going to be scrolling through and like, what have we not done? I I guess we'll do Tom and Jerry for a regular episode. We'll do uh, the Tom and Jerry movie. We'll do A Man Called Flintstone, which was the theatrically released Flintstones cartoon movie. I'm going to be honest. I just want to do A Man Called Flintstone now. (laughs) Let's let's do it. And we'll do every episode of the new Scooby-Doo movies, which was a TV show of hour-long Scooby-Doo episodes. They called the movies. Hour-long. There was an episode episode where they meet Batman. There was an episode where they meet the Three Stooges. Vincent Price as well, multiple times. You know, if there wasn't a pandemic going on, I'm sure that me and Will, probably Will, would have ironically seen Scoob by this point. The uh, Scooby-Doo movie that was supposed to be released theatrically. You know, probably not, actually, because I have no affection whatsoever for Scooby-Doo as a character, as an icon. Yeah, me neither. I didn't even see the theatrical live action films when they came out, and I was right in that perfect age range so next week what are we doing will we are doing john milius 
a writer director who the John Goodman character in The Big Lebowski was based on. He's a guy that was part of the new Hollywood scene. He wrote Apocalypse Now, which was originally supposed to be directed by George Lucas and shot in Vietnam during the war. He was pals with like Steven Spielberg. He wrote 1941. But out of all those kind of Hollywood uh, film brat guys, he's the one who I felt has faded the most into the background. And nobody really talks about him because while he started as a screenwriter and he did become a director, none of his films other than maybe Red Dawn and Conan the Barbarian have had that kind of lasting legacy that, you know, the other filmmakers that came up around that time had. So we're going to be watching Red Dawn, a movie that I have never seen. And I recommend that me and Will visit Big Wednesday, John Milius's personal film about surfing his uh, american graffiti if you will so uh, until next week the balcony is closed oh man i realized as i was stopping talking uh-oh this leaves will the chance to wrap this up no what have <laughs> i done until next week my name is justin clue i'm will Sloan. hi i just need to interrupt here for a moment to thank some of our new patreon subscribers which include Glenn Stefani and Legzy Aries. Thank you very much for becoming subscribers. We could not do this without you. And as per usual, if you haven't given us a review on Apple Podcast or Podcast Addict or Stitcher or whatever podcast app that you use, we'd really appreciate it if you went on there, wrote a little something up, and gave us a star rating. And if you could share us as well on whatever social media application that you use, call up a friend, say, hey, you should listen to the Important Cinema Club. And you can follow me at Declue D-E-C, L-O-U-X, the letter J, and Will at Will Sloan ESQ on Twitter. And we also have a Facebook group. Just search Important Cinema Club. And now we return you to your regular scheduled programming. So, Justin, are you excited to finally see the Snyder Cut? Oh, Will, I don't know if I'll be able to talk with you because my hands are tip-tapping across that keyboard as I'm signing up for HBO Max. <laughs> Actually, HBO Max, as far as I can tell, all of its uh, programming will transfer to Crave HBO, which I'm already subscribed to. Oh, good. I am, too. I'm excited yeah. for that. So that means you won't have to pay extra money to see the Justice League Cut that was Zack Snyder's original vision. I was kind of curious to see the Snyder cut of this movie until I found out it was going to be apparently four hours long. So what interests me about this is not the actual movie, because I've seen the director's cut of Batman vs. Superman. It's bad. Why would I want to see the follow up to that? What interests me is the obsession that grew around this film or this kind of invisible film in a way that I can't even think of being the case in any other movie that came out or didn't come out for that matter. I'm going to say that I am like broadly somewhat in favor of the hashtag release the Snyder Cut movement. And the death threats that they've sent to people, right, Will? Did they send death threats? Was they did. Supposedly some critics said that they would receive DM death threats from uh, release the Snyder Cut people okay, just for well, like denying that a Snyder Cut exists. Well, that I'm not in favor of. I'm not in favor of death threats. I'm not in favor of violence. Uh, I'm totally fine with like trolling a corporate Twitter account and like replying to all of Warner Brothers tweets with hashtag release the Snyder Cut. That I think is funny. And I also generally kind of like the spirit of, of the fact that the movement was like built around an artist's rights, even though the artist is Zack Snyder. Well, do you remember when Zack Snyder was starting to work on Justice League? Like he was supposed to be the shepherd for all these DC movies. And his big thing was 
DC is a director-driven company. It's not like Marvel, which is like a factory line. DC is all about respecting its artists. And then it's almost as if like DC read that tweet and we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We want to be in the complete opposite direction of that, please. We like to make money. But look, I know what side I'm on. Like, I th- the Marvel movies, I think, are on the whole more competent uh, like probably the median Marvel movie is better than the median DC movie, in my opinion. Well, but, the median DC movies are bad when Zack Snyder was involved. With but them. it alarms me that so much of the fandom around the Marvel movies is like they love the quality control over it. Like the fans love the fact that there is a sameness to it and the fact that like people like Kevin Feige or whatever his name is, like assert this wield this control over it and they're like the master architects i mean i like that the dc fans by contrast like they saw the justice league movie that came out and they said this looks like a a shitty weird compromised version of whatever the whatever the vision was and they're fighting for that vision i mean don't get me wrong i have no interest in the movie i think it's probably going to be awful i've never liked a Zack snyder movie but I like the kind of spirit of what, what this movement is fighting for, sort of. What's interesting about the film, too, is that, as many people will tell you, it actually doesn't exist in any form, short of Zack Snyder, like, rendering through CGI a completely different movie. Because what happened was DC rushed into production when Batman vs. Superman opened. They were shooting Justice League. <laughs> And when that film tanked and made way less money than it should have, they started rewriting the whole film on set with Zack Snyder. And like they actually brought critics at one point to be like, look, we can be funny. We can be light. And it's like there was never a pure artistic vision to be found because it was compromised in its construction. And yet the completed version is probably even more compromised. So what's great about the film for people that have obsessed about it is that no matter what is released, they will love it because they love Batman versus Superman. So, I mean, Justice League could literally be Zack Snyder narrating missing scenes like it was a silent film. I love the idea of it being like the reconstructed Metropolis. It's more the complete greed. There's just like still frames throughout the film of what should have happened. Uh, Did you see that David Ayer, the director of Suicide Squad this week was tweeting about, hey, you know, there's there's an Ayer cut of Suicide Squad that's just about complete if anyone wants that. I remember David Ayer saying on stage, the Suicide Squad premiere that this is his director's cut that the director gets to put his vision on screen so it's really funny that he like desperately backtracks afterwards being like oh well actually um you know there's a director's cut of Suicide Squad a movie that nobody likes and why would they want to see that version I think both David Ayer and Zack Snyder should release their cut straight to the Pirate Bay like Paul Schrader did for uh, that Nicolas Cage movie he made because it's not about making money it's about just getting his vision out there the vision that is four hours long and superman is boring and bad and batman sucks can't wait so glad i have that hbo subscription